Companies are more dependent than ever on third-party providers, and that means they need continuous visibility and monitoring of their external partners' threat landscape. If that sounds like your company, you want to join Looking Glass product manager Brandon Dobrik and security ledger editor-in-chief Paul Roberts, that's me, on March 20th at 2 p.m. for a webinar on developing round-the-clock third-party advantage. Brandon and I will discuss what you need to assess vendors in the modern cyber environment and provide an introduction to Looking Glass's cyber situational awareness platform, which provides you with a map of your cyber risks so that you can identify vulnerabilities before your adversary does. To learn more, point your browser to securityledger.com slash third party. That's one word, securityledger.com slash third party. This is the Security Ledger Podcast, and I'm Paul Roberts, Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's podcast episode, number 133, what will it really take for consumers and businesses to ditch the username and password? What kind of authentication will replace QWERTY and 123456? This week, we're kicking off a series of podcast segments on the future of passwords. We're going to be talking with George Avetizov, the CEO of the startup Hyper. But first... Quantum computers sound like the stuff of science fiction with the zeros and ones that are the foundation of modern computing, giving way to the ethereal qubit that can be either a zero, a one, both zero and one, and everything in between. But the arrival of functional quantum computers may be closer than you think. Once they're here, quantum computers will be able to make short work of many of the most commonly used strong encryption schemes, which protect much of the world's sensitive data. For cryptography experts, a decade or two hence is close enough to begin preparing now. One small step in that direction happened this week as Microsoft teamed with the certificate authority DigiCert and the German firm Udemako to announce a successful test implementation of certificates of a Microsoft-developed algorithm known as Picnic, which can create quantum-safe digital certificates used to encrypt, authenticate, and provide integrity for connected devices on the Internet of Things. To understand more about the problem that the advent of quantum computing poses for the security of the Internet and the Internet of Things, we sat down with Avesta Hajadi, the head of DigiCert Labs, and Brian Lamakia, a distinguished engineer and head of the security and cryptography group at Microsoft Research. The two talk about the coming quantum computing revolution and what it's going to mean for security. All right. Uh, I'm Brian Lamacchia. I'm a distinguished engineer at Microsoft, and I'm the head of the security and cryptography research team at Microsoft Research. Right now, today, pretty much every security protocol on the Internet is, uh, uses uh, one of two algorithms for public key cryptography. It uses either the RSA algorithm, which is based on the difficulty of factoring uh, large numbers, right? It's easy to multiply two large numbers, but very hard to reverse and find the two factors that multiply together to something. Or it's based on elliptic curve cryptography, which has similar operations on elliptic curves. And those are two well-studied number theory problems that we basically depend upon for public key encryption and digital signatures all over the internet, right? Every time you connect to a, a secure web server, you're getting authentication information using those algorithms. We've known since 1994 when Peter Shore at Bell Labs came up with a quantum factoring algorithm that if you could build a quantum computer that was big enough, and big enough here is in quotes, and we can talk about what that means later, um, 
you can factor in polynomial time. So if you can build a big enough quantum computer, those hard problems that we depend upon for the security of the Internet are no longer hard. And an attacker will be able to break them easily. So we're facing, in some number of years, when quantum computers that are big enough become possible, and that's nowhere close to where we are today, but out in the future, um, a transition. And because information that we record or that we encrypt today and send over public channels can be recorded by adversaries and potentially broken in the future, and that information has a long security lifetime, and because we're deploying devices today, like IoT devices that have very long lifetimes, we have to think about putting defenses in today that are going to still be relevant 15, 20 years down the road. So there are so the effort today is to come up with quantum-safe algorithms, that is, new public key algorithms that are not susceptible to uh, fast attack with the aid of a quantum computer. And that's the big work that's happening today. Because progress on deep technical challenges like this doesn't really move in a linear fashion, I've heard anywhere from you know quantum computers capable of breaking encryption being online within five years or 15 years or maybe never. Like People don't know, but they think increasingly that it's likely and not in the distant future. What are your thoughts, I mean, if you were a betting man, on how long it is going to be before there's a quantum computer big enough, and again, we'll talk about what that means, to actually take a swing at an RSA or AES algorithm that's now considered safe? When I started my project at Microsoft Research in early 2015, we have a quantum computing team at Microsoft that's trying to build quantum computers. And so I went to them and I said, when do you think we're going to see a cryptographically relevant quantum computer? Okay, that's talking about anywhere from 1,000 to 10,000 logical quantum bits. No, and there's logical stable quantum bits, way more than anything that's practical today. They told me roughly then 15 years. They were saying 2030. Okay, and they're still sticking by that number as a rough number, maybe plus or minus a couple years. So not five years, but within you know less than 15 is a, poss- is a distinct possibility. Um, and when I started my project, I said, okay, 2030 is a far way out there. But then when you start doing the work back plan for what everything that has to happen to effectively upgrade the internet to new public key algorithms, you know, developing them, uh, proving that they're secure, standardizing them, updating all our common protocols like TLS and IPsec, rolling them out, turning off and deprecating RSA and ECC, that's a 15-year process. So we weren't starting too soon, even though it's iffy. And you're right. This may turn out that we're never able to build cryptographic-relevant quantum computers. But the risk of us not doing the work and you know an adversarial entity succeeding is so high that a lot of this is all just risk mitigation. Yeah. I mean, we're trying to, we're still trying to get off of IPv4, right? So. Correct. Right. Look how long that transition was. Look how long the transition from SHA-1 to SHA-2 and hash functions. Right. Or just getting everybody to increase the sizes of their RSA keys. Right. Right. And this is going to be a more complicated transition. 
So can we back up just for a second and just explain when we're talking about quantum computers, um, so we're talking about moving away from bits as the basic building blocks of, of computers, you know, zeros and ones, to these things called qubits. Uh, because I'm not a physicist uh, or even a mathematician, just explain to me and our listeners, you know, what are we talking about here with these qubits? What are these things? Well, so first off, I'm not a physicist either. So, you know, my understanding of the physics is, is somewhat limited. But what so think about it this way we if you go into the distant past we actually had we had computing engines that were built on mechanical structures and then we moved to you know electrical transistor based computers um with bits what a what a quantum computer is is it's built on quantum mechanical properties and a qubit is effectively a, a bit that can hold multiple states in superposition. It can be both a zero and a one at the same time. And what that lets you do is solve certain types of problems, in particular search problems or problems that can be cast as search problems very quickly because you can, you can have a certain number of qubits that can hold the state of your solution, but all the other possible solutions that you're trying to search over um, and through the way that you run algorithms on a quantum computer, the correct solution effectively constructively reinforces among the, the interference of the qubits, and the other answers sort of drop out. Uh, the way to think about it is if you were searching for an AES key or searching for the subproblem that we need to solve for factoring, as long as you have enough stable qubits, you can encode into that all of the possibilities of what might be a possible answer, and then sort of the answer quickly surfaces out of that. Um, so the difference is a bit's not a zero or one, it's both a zero and a one and anything in between. Hmm. Okay, And so when you string together a thousand logical stable qubits, you can record sort of all the values that could be recorded in a thousand bits at the same time. Brian, does does Mike? I know you mentioned Microsoft's working on a quantum computer. Does Microsoft have a working quantum computer? I know IBM has their Q computer, and and there are some others out there. Um, does I does Microsoft have one that you can test these things on? Or we're still working on our first qubit, uh, physical qubit. The Microsoft approach took sort of the long shot approach to go after what you could consider version two physical hardware. Uh, their scheme is based on something called topological qubits, and they're likely to have much better engineering scaling properties, but they're still searching to get that first qubit built. However, we also have, we're, you know, we look at, we're, you know, we look at the entire software system. So we have today uh, a programming language and a simulator for the quantum computer. So we have something called Q-sharp, which is a, a, a language for, that integrates into Visual Studio and lets you basically write quantum algorithms, and then you can run them in a simulated you know, format on what would be simulated quantum hardware. And we're able to test things out that way. So you know, these algorithms that we're developing all run on classical computers. They have to be able to run on you know, your my PC and laptops and IoT devices and everything else. But we actually do do cryptanalysis on our simulated quantum environments. And part of our research has been trying to estimate exactly how many qubits you would need to, say, break an RSA key or break an ECC key 
um, using the, the stack of, of quantum computing simulation tools that we've already got. And this is, by the way, just so your listeners know, all of that software is available today for free. You can go download Q-Sharp today. You can go get our code today if you want to play around with these algorithms. Everything's out there you know, available on GitHub and this studio. And you can try, you can write your own quantum algorithms and try stuff out. And that's exactly what we have been doing in trying to, to break our own stuff. Uh, I mean, it sounds like a huge engineering challenge. I mean, from what I understand of qubits, they are very sensitive to interference of various sorts um, and really need to be kind of held in this very um, isolated state in order to work. And that's going to require all kinds of new material development, obviously new software language development and so on. I mean, to read about it, you're like, is this ever going to happen? I mean, it sounds like there are a lot of, a lot of loose threads here that need to be tied together. Well, you're right. It's a huge effort. The qubits that Microsoft's looking at exist at super cold temperatures, fractions of a degree above absolute zero, right? This is, you know, colder than deep space cold sort of places. And if you think about it, there's a whole bunch of engineering challenges just to get data from room temperature classical computing into the super cold environment where you're going to run your quantum computing qubits and then get it back out. And you got to get your bits built, and and there's a lot of problems. And you know, other companies are pursuing different physical mechanisms for trying to build their qubits, and they've all got pros and cons, right? There isn't a particular winner today. And you're right, it's a huge lift. Mm-hmm. But at Microsoft, we see a whole bunch of benefits that can come from being able to build quantum computers, smaller than cryptographically relevant ones. When you get to a couple hundred qubits. There are problems in chemistry and metallurgy and agriculture that all of a sudden become easy to solve that mm-hmm. we can't um, solve today. And so we see a lot of benefits in being able to make these sorts of compute capabilities available to our customers in the cloud. Uh, but the downside is that we also, when they get big enough, they threaten you know, our cryptography. And so that's why we got to, you know, there's a pro and con to that technology. Vesta, I was going to ask you, I mean, what is the threat to existing uh, encryption schemes from this type of compute power? Is it just that these algorithms become trivially breakable? I'm Avesta Ojadi, head of R&D at DigiSafe. So you can imagine uh, the best scenario to describe is as uh, um, IT devices. You know, you can think about a car that takes about five to seven years of a design cycle. And uh, this car is going to be on the road for the next uh, 20 years. The certificates that are going to be on this uh, cars are utilizing um, algorithms such as RSA and ECC. So while these vehicles are on the road, when the quantum computers arrive, we can simply think about that their ability to break these encryption. So in order to be protected against these um, attacks on these algorithms, the classical ones, again, RSA or ECC, um, uh, uh, Brian and his team and a number of other teams, they have worked on different algorithms that are capable of resisting um, quantum attacks. Um, in a specific, um, one of the algorithms that we have been working on is Picnic that uh, Microsoft Research has been working on. And what we're trying to prove here is that here's an algorithm that is resistant against quantum computer. And at the same time, you're able to deploy this algorithm right across the RSA or ECC algorithm in an environment that we call hybrid certificate you're able to utilize the classical algorithm and post-quantum algorithm at the same time. So for uh, the car manufacturer, as an example, you're able to have these uh, certificates on that car and you're able to 
be safe today, 5, 10, and 20 years from now when those quantum computers are um, actually functional. And without causing all of our heads to explode, if you could explain what are the qualities of these newer algorithms that make them resistant to these super powerful uh, quantum computers, at least the ones that they're working to develop? Well, in, in fact, we don't actually have any proof for the new number theory algorithms we're looking at that they're guaranteed to be quantum safe, right? If we're being very precise, what we say is there's no known quantum advantage. That is, if I look at a problem and I assume that my attacker has as much classical compute power, as many racks of servers and as many data centers as they want, and, a, and as big a quantum computer as they want, the quantum computer doesn't give them any advantage over just the racks of classical computing. When we look at something like factoring or elliptic curve operations, we know the quantum computer does give them an advantage because the quantum computer can solve things in polynomial time that the classical computing can't. That's why those algorithms fail. For lattices, um, for um, super singular isogenies, which is another uh, the basis for another scheme my team's involved in, and for some of the other schemes in the competition, um, we have, as far as anybody knows, there's no quantum algorithm that can help you solve the fundamental hard problems at the base of the lattice schemes or any of these other schemes. We don't have proofs that that doesn't exist. We have security models for it, and we and we don't know that there's an algorithm, but there's always a possibility, like with factoring, right? Somebody could always come up with a faster factoring algorithm that we just don't know about yet. That's always a possibility, but that's part of why, as part of the NIST standardization process, you know, all of these algorithms are basically open for study, and we're all trying to find weaknesses in all of them. Sure. So that we make the best possible choices. And Avesta, um, obviously, Digicert's built a huge global infrastructure to support, you know, the distribution of of encryption and keys. Do these new quantum safe algorithms and encryption tools change that, or or make new demands on the certificate authorities like Digicert? Uh, great question, Paul. So um, one of the goals that we set for ourselves at the beginning of this project last year was. Um, to make sure that there's no need for changing infrastructure for either us or for our customers. So I mentioned the term hybrid. Um, that means we do have this uh, certificates being X509 certificates that today are utilizing RSA or ECC. And uh, what we are working on right now is to be able to actually deploy the same certificates, but add the capability of post-quantum crypto, such as Picnic, and uh, Brian mentioned Q-Tesla, so we are working on two different algorithms at this point using um, two different approaches. One of them is lattice-based, um, being Q-Tesla, and then uh, for super singular isogeny, which is what um, Picnic is. So again, uh, there's no requirement to change our infrastructure. Our infrastructure is already um, scalable. And uh, what we are working right now is to make sure the POCs are up to the quality of uh, what our customers are expecting and to the quality that DigiCert has already been promised. And, and you, you know, one of the big, obviously, uh, challenges going forward is going to be that we're talking about many, many more devices that are using um, public key cryptography to exchange information. Obviously, the Internet of Things is already you know large and growing. Um, so this is going to be the type of technology that's going to be protecting a wide range of devices, so medical devices, automobiles, machinery, you know, connected smart city and infrastructure as well. Yeah, you can think about the this devices are being everywhere. You know, uh, you need to remember that these devices are having a long uh, life cycle. 
you know, it's not a year um, of using this device and just changing it. They're going 5, 10, 20 years. You mentioned medical devices. You can imagine that this pacemaker being inside a patient body and you don't want to take it out every year to just update that cryptographic library on that uh, on that device or updating the certificate. So what we have been working on, again, with Microsoft and Utimaco is coming up with POCs that shows the certificates are easy to be deployed today and they're written for testing purposes. So anybody is able to pick up the cycle of, you know, having an HSM as well as certificate and the algorithm and be able to run their tests on it and see how viable the solution is for the environment. Uh, so you're saying if, you've, if you're rolling out infrastructure, products, hardware that has a lifespan in that, you know, 5 to 15, 20-year lifespan, uh, you need to be thinking about this. Okay, you got their attention, but what can they do at a practical level? They can start testing now. I mean, the most important thing I tell everyone who comes in and, and I talk to, if they're a customer that comes in at Microsoft, if they're a partner with us, is to make sure that the software and the systems that they're building and deploying today are cryptographically agile. That is, that they can easily be configured to switch from one cryptographic algorithm to another. We're looking at multiple algorithm transitions over the next 10 to 15 years, right? We're going to see a transition from what we use today to the hybrid sorts of schemes that Digicert is demoing with this rollout. Um, in certificates and in public key encryption, where we use both a classical scheme and a post-quantum scheme. And then eventually we'll turn the classical schemes off, we'll deprecate them, and we'll go to just post-quantum schemes. So the most important thing people can do today is to, is to try them out. If you're, think, if you're deploying a system today, make sure the system you're deploying has an upgrade path and has the flexibility. And, you know, there is code available, freely available for all the post-quantum algorithms in this competition. Uh, Digicert and Udimako and us, you know, they're, that they're standing up this service so you can test out certificates. Uh, you can actually do test connections today. And just being aware of that and making sure that anything that you deploy, you're deploying with cryptographic agility and flexibility and this future transition in mind. That's the most important thing. And Avesta, if they want to take advantage of this new offering from Digicert, what do they need to do, and and how can they take advantage of it? Sure. Um, I just want to have, you know emphasize on what um, uh, Brian was saying. The transition time is quite important. Um, being crypto agile is quite important. Being able to test these, and uh, for listeners uh, that you're having, they can reach out to labs at digicert.com. And we can proceed from there, uh, giving them an ability to be able to test these um, hybrid certificates and be familiar with the environment of uh, testing and seeing that how their devices or web servers are able to take advantage of either Picnic or T-Tesla, as well as the infrastructure that we have set up. If your listeners are developers, go out and check things out on GitHub. Check out the DigiCert service that's coming out. We've been contributing to something called the Open Quantum Safe Library that's hosted at the University of Waterloo in Canada. And that would be the place to start if you wanted to integrate some of these algorithms into your own protocols. You know, we have OpenSSL working with TLS 1.3 today and some other protocols. And there's lots out there to try. And feedback from the community is really important to the NIST standardization effort. We're just starting round two. We expect that to run for a year, year and a half. And it's an open process and everybody can comment on it. And, And I encourage your listeners to do so. Well, thank you both, Avesta Hajadi of DigiCert and Brian Amachia of Microsoft. Thank you so much for coming on and talking to us on Security Ledger Podcast. 
pleasure. Thanks for having us. It was great speaking to both of you. Up next, in just the last month, hundreds of millions of usernames and passwords were exposed by researchers, the contents of online compendiums known as Collections 1 through 5. They're the fruits of data breaches and hacks going back years, and they're a useful tool for cybercriminals who can grab known username and password combinations to use in credential stuffing attacks against a wide range of online websites. The password problem gets even worse when you think about the Internet of Things, where endpoints will proliferate and the consequences of successful attacks and compromises risk not only data, but life and limb. What's the solution? One easy answer is to use biometric identifiers like fingerprints, face scans, even voice. But widespread use of biometrics poses a risk to privacy and civil liberties, as countries like China are demonstrating on a daily basis. So, is there a happy medium between security, privacy, and civil liberties? Our next guest, George Avetisov of the firm Hyper, thinks there is. In this podcast segment, George and I talk about how decentralized authentication schemes might plausibly replace the password without requiring a massive new investment in infrastructure. To start off, I asked George, to tell us a little bit about the Hyper technology. George Avedisov, I'm the co-founder and CEO of Hyper. Uh, Our core belief is that big breaches, uh, phishing attacks, credential stuffing attacks, account takeover and fraud all happen because companies are storing everyone's passwords inside the enterprise. So, you know, companies are storing all of our passwords and our authentication keys in one place and essentially creating a single point of failure. You know, this is how we got Yahoo. This is how we got LinkedIn. This is how we got large-scale breaches like uh, Twitter is a recent one that comes to mind. And every time you look at these breaches, you'll notice that the one thing they have in common is, you know, the enterprise is storing all of our keys, our passwords, our, our personal credentials inside the enterprise. So at Hyper, we believe that by moving those authentication keys outside of the enterprise, essentially moving passwords and users' credentials to their personal mobile phone, we can effectively remove the hacker's favorite target. This approach, which we call true passwordless security, forces hackers to have to attack each user's device individually rather than targeting the enterprise. And this is a big paradigm shift in authentication that we're seeing. And it's only possible today because of the mobile device, because everyone has a mobile device. So our customers are companies uh, like big banks and enterprises who are looking to passwordless authentication as a way of eliminating big breaches, credential reuse, account fraud, and securing their customers and employees. And that's essentially what I put that. So, I mean, we saw recently there were string of massive password and username dumps from Troy Hunt and others, you know, collections, one, two, three, four, five, and so on. I mean, it would seem to me like if you have a password, it's probably been leaked in some form already. But it's also kind of hard to see how organizations get rid of passwords. I mean, do you see a point in which we're able to get out from under the alphanumeric password altogether? I'll answer that question in two parts. The first is typical 2FA, legacy two-factor authentication. There's a lot of vendors, there's a lot of companies that have been doing this for a long time now. And these solutions have been built on top of passwords. But as you just said, they've been used alongside passwords or as a second 
layer on top of password. And although they've made the login experience more complicated and actually less convenient, they haven't meaningfully improved security. When you look at these big breaches, like you just mentioned the, the latest Troy Hunt password done, uh, most of these big breaches that we see and most of the account fraud and credential stuffing attacks that we see aren't new attacks. They're attacks on other people's passwords. They're reusing passwords that have been stolen elsewhere. So you as a company might have two-factor authentication. You might have strong uh, behavioral authentication on your users. You might have all kinds of layers, right? But if you're still relying on passwords at the core, it doesn't matter if you've never been breached. Other breaches impact you because people reuse their passwords. It's human nature. And those other breaches, passwords, are getting reused against your users. So what's happened over the last couple of years is companies have actually you know, stood up and said, look, we've implemented two-factor authentication. We've implemented touch ID or face ID, and we're getting higher fraud rates, not better fraud rates. So what's the problem? Well, the problem is you haven't actually gotten rid of the password. So what I'd like to emphasize is that Hyper's mission is to finally do away with that password. And that's how we differentiate against some of the legacy uh, 2FA and MFA technologies out there. So, George, I mean, if you peel back the covers on Hyper's technology, what's the source or proof of identity that you're replacing the user ID and password with? How do you construct identity based on the user and the phone? So, the big paradigm shift that you're seeing is the world is moving from shared secrets, passwords, and one-time passwords to decentralized authentication, uh, biometrics, and uh, public key uh, PKI-based authentication. So this paradigm shift is allowing companies like Hyper to use what we call decentralized authentication to log you in. So uh, right now, when you log into your bank, you're using a password or you're using some kind of two-factor token. And all of those keys and those passwords, those shared secrets, are stored inside the bank, right? They're stored inside the enterprise. Now, with decentralized authentication, which is at the core of what Hyper does, we move those keys from a centralized repository to your phone, effectively decentralizing them. Now that it's your private key stored on your phone, you can use it to authenticate to different things. Um, your mobile uh, applications, your online bank, um, even door locks. We have customers who deploy Hyper for physical access in addition to their you know, workforce logging. Uh, so what's really unique and different is that you're now using your phone as your personal decentralized authentication mechanism. It's tied to you individually. Uh, it can't be accessed by a hacker uh, remotely. They need your physical device to actually uh, be able to attack it. So that, that is a much higher level of security and it's a much more complex attack than hackers have ever had to deal with. I mean, I think what's interesting is that the places where you see the most aggressive use of biometrics are also places where governments are accumulating biometric identifiers like India or China. And while it allows more seamless interactions online, there's also a real civil rights and privacy threat that 
makes it hard to sell in the U.S. It sounds as if you're talking about something that maybe threads that needle. Yes. So you just described two different ways of doing biometrics, which um, a lot of people aren't really familiar with. Um, let's, let's take the example of India's biometric system, right? Uh, they're storing everyone's biometric data in one place. Uh, it's effectively very much like how passwords are stored. Um, you know, biometrics are centralized, encrypted, they're held in one database. Uh, we've already seen the breaches that happen as a result. The way biometrics are done uh, at some of these large um, scale projects like in India or uh, in China is fundamentally different from how they're being handled on mobile phones, such as the iPhone or the Samsung phones. Um, what you'll see on these devices is that the biometrics are actually stored on the mobile device. You know, your touch ID or your face ID biometric template never leaves your phone. This is essentially the, the beginning of decentralized authentication. This is how you, you get it to happen. You have to decentralize those credentials and those keys on your personal device. And by doing that, companies like Samsung and Apple are giving you a level of privacy that you've never had before. So to answer your question, what I think is really you know, missing here, what people need to understand overseas, and I, I actually think that in the state, people have kind of warmed up to biometrics because of this, is that if you use the mobile device and if you use mobile biometrics uh, correctly with decentralized authentication, your privacy is much stronger and better than it ever was before. Your biometrics are not being sent over the wire like they are with the password. Uh, so those are two different approaches, and um, you know, hopefully the decentralized approach uh, continues to grow as we've seen it um, here in the state. I mean, uh, globally, there are over 1 billion biometric devices out there already. Uh, so there's really no reason why we shouldn't see every user on the planet eventually having a mobile personal device capable of this type of authentication. So, I mean, everybody's moving towards a hyper-like solution, but everybody's pursuing a different solution or a different way of doing it. Do you worry that we're going to end up in a situation where everyone's walking around in this balkanized authentication environment where you need 30 different biometrics and platforms to access 30 different services? It's important to delineate identity from authentication, right? This right now, this core problem that needs to be solved immediately is the authentication problem. We're seeing password reuse and fraud rates at all-time high, and we need to get rid of the password, which is the core of that problem. Decentralized authentication is the way to do it. So going passwordless, moving it to the mobile device, getting those authentication keys out of the enterprise, and solving for authentication is the first step in the journey. Identity is more complex. So if authentication is, you know, answering the question of, am I who I say I am? Identity is answering the question, who am I? So what are the things that actually make up my identity? It's going to be a while before identity is decentralized. And it's going to take some time before hybrid systems appear. And you just made a good example that people will be able to authenticate a variety of ways, but the identity store that they're authenticating to uh, needs to be fundamentally different than how it is today. Um, so I think that systems like India's um, biometric database, for example, you know, they likely would have been better off having a centralized, uh, uh, you know, perhaps identity store, but moving the biometrics to people's devices. Uh, now that's a logistical problem. You can't ensure that everyone, especially in a country like India, has a device capable of biometric mobile authentication. 
So again, this is one of those things that has to happen with time, has to happen with uh, technology being more ubiquitous. Uh, we have to see the, uh, the total population uh, have a device capable of mobile biometrics before they can make a shift like that. But the point of it is you can have a hybrid model and you should have a hybrid model because being able to solve for authentication is such a big impact on its own that the problems with identity become much more easier to address once you've eliminated passwords. I guess what's moving people towards solutions like this is a concern about the lack of security with single-factor authentication. What propels us to a new paradigm, though, where we're using stronger forms of identity and pushes us past the user ID and password forever? Is it regulation, or is it just more leaks and more attacks based on those leaks? I mean, what gets us there? I'll give you a couple of big tailwinds. So you mentioned that people were trying to you know, solve for single-factor authentication. It's not just single-factor authentication. People are actually trying to fix broken two-factor authentication. Um, you know, if you go on Google's uh, security predictions for 2019, uh, it's on the Google blog, um, you know, number one is about fixing broken 2FA systems. Um, because it's, we've come to a point where even legacy two-factor isn't good enough uh, to protect against phishing and credential reuse attacks. And number two, rise of true passwordless security, which is really telling. You know, you see that number one and number two are so interconnected, and they're all part of this same you know, passwordless story that, that we're talking about here. It's really telling. So what are the drivers of that? Well, interesting you ask. When you look at companies like Google, companies like Microsoft, you'll notice that they're pushing an open standard for passwordless authentication. It's known as the FIDO authentication standard. And it's a way of making uh, strong authentication interoperable and easy to adopt uh, by companies. So when you look at the big web browsers, uh, you know, your question was, is it going to be regulation that makes people really you know, go, oh, I need this today? It's not necessarily regulation. If you look at uh, browsers like Chrome, Safari, uh, they're adopting strong authentication. They're adopting the FIDO2 uh, web authentication. Uh, they're basically making it possible for you to uh, use it uh, as, as a user in the browser. So these advancements and these open standards that are being pushed by companies like Microsoft and Google who are telling you to eliminate the password, go passwordless, is a big tailwind uh, that's not relying on regulation, it's not relying on fear mongering, it's relying on innovation. I know part of Hyper's market position in technology is about solving IoT authentication problems, Internet of Things authentication problems. So talk to us a little bit on the Internet of Things. How will a technology like Hyper's come into play? Absolutely. So, you know, early in our development, we saw that the password was not just, you know, how we think of the password today, which is me logging into my Facebook account, right? The password, you can consider it a key. And if you look at the password as a key, then when we look at the, the world around us, the connected world, you realize I have keys to lots of things. Uh, keys to door locks, keys to cars. Uh, my ATM card is a key to my ATM. These are different types of keys or different types of shared secrets or passwords. It doesn't just stop at the password. So we've actually been able to work with some really large uh, um, uh, lock manufacturers, ATM manufacturers, and even companies in the auto space 
who are who see this problem the way we do and want to get ahead of it. So what we call true password authentication, right? So being able to authenticate to the IoT in a secure way uh, means implementing the same uh, approach as we're doing for passwordless security. And what I mean by that is when you unlock your car um, today, your key is in your pocket, right? Your physical key is stored in your pocket. It's safe. And if somebody wants to steal that car, they more or less kind of have to get that key uh, out of your pocket. Now, when you put that key on the cloud, you've opened up a whole can of worms. And that's where, you know, the industry is kind of heading. We're starting to put keys on, uh, on our mobile devices. We're starting to store them in apps and, you know, unlocking doors and cars. And companies are realizing, hey, the minute I put this key on an internet-connected device, I've opened up a whole new way for hackers to get into this system. So what we see is uh, uh, decentralized authentication and biometrics as being a way to secure that data. So moving your car key to your phone, protecting it with a biometric, and making sure it's decentralized on your phone, never moved or never sent over the air, is the way to do that. And what I like to call it is, uh, you know, the biometric Internet of Things or the BIOT is, is what we're heading towards. And uh, hopefully, you know, technology like Hyper will be able to get us there. George Vetsoff is the CEO of Hyper. George, thanks so much for coming in and talking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Oh, man, uh, I look forward to speaking again, and uh, thanks for having us on.